Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Friends, let's be gentle on this day. It's Orange Shirt Day and the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And these stories about residential school are hard. It's a day that can be exhausting. And we need to take care and take care of each other. There is a 24-7 helpline for survivors of residential schools. That number is one 866 925-4419. We're at the Young People's Theatre in Toronto. A crowd of people of all ages are lined up to meet Phyllis Webstad. They wait patiently as she signs each book, careful to get each name right. Phyllis sits at a table, a pile of bright orange books nearby. Every Child Matters is her latest storybook for kids. So what I'm writing in here is Gukshjam, which is uh, thank you in my language. Thank you for learning about what happened to us. So I really appreciate that. So thank you. It's about 6 o'clock at night, and it's been a long day for her. Billis has been up since 5 a.m. doing media interviews, talking with kids, signing book after book. And she's still at it. She says it's because it's the kids who really listen, who want to make a difference, who will share the larger-than-life story of a little girl's orange shirt. Danse Anin Bouju. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. September 30th is a day to talk about the effects of residential schools, about the trauma that continues to ripple across Turtle Island. It's a day that honors the experiences of Indigenous survivors, celebrates our resilience, and affirms a now familiar phrase. Every Child Matters. September 30th is Orange Shirt Day. In the last few years, we also know it as the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. But for many, it will always be a day that started with one child, Phyllis Webstad and her orange shirt. Do you have an orange shirt day in your, in your school? Yeah? And, and you have an orange shirt as well? Or a closet full? No? <laughs> Phyllis Webstad was six years old when she was forced to leave her Shawetma community and attend a residential school. For the occasion, her grandmother bought her a new orange shirt, but it was taken away from her when she arrived at the school. Phyllis has been sharing the story of her orange shirt for 10 years now. She's written books about it, has talked with thousands of people about her healing journey, 
and set a course on the path to reconciliation. Phyllis is from the Canoe Creek Indian Band. She is an author, activist, and the founder of Orange Shirt Day. Phyllis, welcome to Unreserved. Hello, thank you for having me. At the beginning of our show, we heard you at an event for your newest book, which I have here, Every Child Matters. How do you feel when you're in those crowds of, of so many people who, who line up and, and want to know and share in, in your story and in your energy? Mm-hmm. It's something that I cannot say that I'm used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm getting better at it, but I do like the interaction. People coming up all excited. The other night there was a woman all in orange with a Every Child Matters hat, and she just wanted to meet me. And there was a little girl there that came, and I chatted with her. And others want to come and tell me a bit about their stories or what they're doing. And it's... It's overwhelming at times, but I, I really enjoy talking to people and hearing their stories. Mm. What kinds of things do people say to you when, when they interact with you? Mm-hmm. Well, I was in Winnipeg a couple of weeks ago and was uh, the first survivors gathering in Canada, like a national one, this older male from Alberta came up with his graying hair. He had braids on the side, like kind of loosely, and like he looked like he could be like a movie star in the movies. And um, he just came with this other person and he said, you're our hero. Mm. And even now it, it kind of gets me all emotional and and I've heard how people have heard my story, and then that gives them the um, the strength to tell their stories. There's so much good that's come out of it. Phyllis, can you take me back to your earliest years, before you were sent to residential school? What was life like for you where you lived? I grew up with my grandmother on the Dog Creek Reserve until I was 10, and... We didn't have electricity. We had one tap that uh, brought in cold water. As before that, they used to get water from the creek. We didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse. Granny didn't have a job, per se, not like I've had to. And so to make money, she would tan deer hides and moose hides and make buckskin gloves and vests and coats and bead them and sell them at the Dock Creek General Store, which is probably how she got the money to pay for our clothes, my new shirt, Mm -hmm. to go to school in. We lived off the land. Granny had three gardens. We dried fish and dried meat, canned as well as much as we could. We had berries from the land. So the <clears throat> the diet was a lot of natural. Granny lived to be a little over 100, so it's wow. probably credited to her diet in her, her early years. Fond memories were Granny was the youngest of 10. 
We would meet her siblings down at the Fraser River, which flows into the Pacific Ocean near Vancouver. And in the summer, the sockeye salmon come up the river and spawn in the various creeks. And so we would camp sometimes the entire summer right by the creek. And we would have uh, fish for breakfast, fish for lunch, fish for dinner. <laughs> Yummy. Yes. And those were, were good memories. So when I did uh, spend that time at residential school, I've learned the word is disassociate. I could, my spirit could leave my body, which happens when children are put into situations that they have no control over and they can't escape. So I learned to escape through my spirit and go to where there were happy times. And mm -hmm. so the river was one of those happy times and being in granny's house with her. And so I could go back. And even when I got older, I used to get excited about bedtime because that's what I would do. I could go anywhere, be anything I wanted to be. And, and, uh, I've kind of lost that over the years, but I, as an adult, I can still find myself disassociating. So I have to need to call my spirit back occasionally. Mm -hmm. It's really heartbreaking to hear, you know, stories about how our, our grandparents and our mothers, our, my own mother, uh, were taken away from such a beautiful life. Did you grow up knowing your family's connection to residential schools? I knew about it. I knew it happened, and it happened to me. Uh, but it wasn't something that we we talked about. And to be clear, how many uh, in your family were taken? Uh, there were 14, um, starting with my grandmother. All of her 10 children, including my mother, Granny's eldest grandchild, and myself. I'm Granny's second eldest grandchild, and unbeknownst to me, my son was at St. Michael's when it closed in 1996. Mm. And so four generations of our family. Four generations of your family were taken to residential school. Yes. I just want people to sit with that for a minute and understand that's a lot. That is a lot of trauma for one family to carry. When you were six years old, your grandmother gave you an orange shirt. Can you tell me about this orange shirt? Mm-hmm. I turned six in July of 1973. And Granny did what she had always done. She brought me to town and my cousin to buy us something new to wear to go to school in. It was the early 70s, the crazy hippie, psychedelic time. Everything mm -hmm. was bright. And I chose a uh, bright orange shirt with uh, a shoelace string in front, like with the holes and the shoelace laced through. I didn't get many new things, so I definitely remembered getting that shirt and uh, being excited. And, and uh, so it's about a two-hour ride to the mission. And when I get there, my shirt, everybody's clothing gets taken away. And that's the story that I told in 2013 when the TRC came to Williams Lake. And we wanted to invite everybody to hear the truths of survivors. I went to 
St. Joseph's when I had just turned six in 1973-74. That's Phyllis Webstad talking about her experience at residential school back in 2013. That's when the TRC, or the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, visited Williams Lake to record stories from our survivors. It's the first time Phyllis publicly told her story of her orange shirt. My grandmother probably couldn't afford it, but she always bought a new set of clothes for all the kids going to the mission, and I was no exception, and it was really exciting. And I picked out an orange shirt. It was really shiny, and it just sparkled. And, but when I got there, we got stripped, and we got put in. I don't know what we got put in, but my orange shirt was taken away, and I never, well, I did see it. Other kids were wearing it, so to me, orange has never been my friend. So I wear it today as a symbol of the healing that's taking place. Orange has always been, to me, the um, not mattering to anybody. Nobody caring that we had feelings. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. My guest today is author, activist, and residential school survivor, Phyllis Webstad. Can you take me back to that, that moment when you first shared that story publicly? I didn't know what I was going to talk about the night before, because there was a... Uh, chief, there was the mayor, there was the chair of the Caribou Regional District, there was a superintendent, then there was me, unemployed residential school survivor, wearing orange. And um, so I I didn't do a lot of public speaking then. And so it, it was really uncomfortable to to be telling that story. And it was really scary. And after I told the story, like I was just shaking because it's it was new and it wasn't something that I I talked about a lot. I don't think I ever talked about it. Um, even my son's father sent me a message later, and he said he thought he knew me well, but that's a story that he didn't know. So, yeah, it's not not something I talked about. Yeah. And what did that shirt, or, or more specifically, the taking of that shirt from you come to represent for you? Even though my healing journey started in 1994, when I was 27 years old, I had never really connected residential school history, my story, to my life. And I, it just hit me in 2013 and when the event was over it it came out of my bones i i ached for a whole three weeks and nothing i could do could stop it no tylenol no advil no baths nothing and um, i just had to ride it out what i say now is life can be understood backward but must be lived forward but i had to go back and to revisit in order to make sense of what happened. 
and how it impacted my life even <clears throat> into current day. And that feeling was uh, like I didn't matter. All of us there, I was a newly six-year-old, there were five-year-olds there. Five and six-year-olds sh should not be comforting each other. And that's what was happening. We could be sick, tired, hungry, lonely, sad, crying our eyeballs out at night. And there wasn't an adult to come and make it better. So I felt like I did not matter. And that's where every child matters originally started from. And I brought that with me. I allowed people to treat me in ways that were unacceptable. And I um, had to really do some soul searching that, because I always felt that I didn't belong on this earth. Nobody cared if I was here. And uh, I found that is not true. That's not the case. Um, I used to feel sorry for myself. Woe is me. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. And I'd just cry and cry. And uh, that was when I started my healing journey in 94. And in 2013, I still kind of felt that way. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I have every right as any other human being on this earth to walk this land, to walk on this earth and breathe this air. I'm no less than. I'm no better. I belong here. Mm. So that's what 2013 taught me. Mm. And it's so, I might have, you know, talked about it or at a level, a brain level, but I really understood that after that three weeks when my bones ached, that darn it, I belong here. And um, I'm not going to put up with um, mistreatment anymore. Yeah, so that was a big lesson in 2013, was um, just a coming into myself, I guess, that um, uh, no matter what happened, I would be okay. So when people ask me that, are you okay? I tell them, I'm, I'm always okay. Mm. Because um, I have a family that supports me. I have grandchildren. I'm rich that way. And uh, I've been through the worst of it. And um, nothing will compare that's going to happen in the years to come to what I've come through and what I've been through. So... I'll always be okay. My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herb original. I am chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshan Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed, I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. 
My guest today is Phyllis Webstead, author, educator, and the reason so many people on September 30th wear an orange shirt. Now, Phyllis, you've written many books. Uh, five, is it now? Yes. Five books telling your story, some of which have been translated into Shushwap, Kitsan, and Shnabe Moen, and En Francais. Why did you want to tell your story in, in book form? After I told my story in 2013, I'd be asked to go and talk to children and tell them my story and it was hard to just stand there just me in front of these children and I thought if I had pictures I could show them and I could tell them what happened and it would be easier to uh, relate to them so they were my uh, motivation inspiration for my first book the orange shirt story why the focus on, on telling this story to, to children? Many people might argue that it's, it's such a dark place in our history. Why, why, we, why would we want to teach that to children? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard people say uh, yeah. we were children when we were there um, and we survived. And it's important to let them know, even with the vocabulary, building the vocabulary, about what happened and as they get older there's books for different age groups so that their understanding is a bit more and then so when they come into adulthood that uh, they have the knowledge and the tools and the awareness to be different and to know what happened so that the next generations don't have to put up with what we've had to put up put up with in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Your latest book is is uh, is out. It's called Every Child Matters. Do you have it with you? Yes. I was hoping you could read us maybe a couple pages of that book. Since time immemorial, Indigenous peoples have lived on Turtle Island celebrating, practicing, and honoring our own indigenous cultures. Since time immemorial, our dances have been danced, our songs have been sung, our languages have been spoken. Since time immemorial, our teachings have been honored, our ceremonies have been loved, our cultures have been practiced, Our families have been together. For many years, Indigenous peoples have been told that our way of life is wrong and that we should change who we are. A system was created to stop us from being who we were meant to be, Indigenous peoples. It was called the residential school system. What's special about being um, with children and getting questions from them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they um, they just want so bad to understand what it was like. And they want to know if I had friends and um, if I ever got my shirt back or how come I never went back. 
that I just spent one year there and they um I went to my grandson's classroom in Kamloops and uh, I read one of my books that was like when he was five or six and they all lined up to give me a hug all mm. of them <laughs> that was just amazing like at that age they can't really understand much uh, but they know that it wasn't right to take my shirt away that those people shouldn't have done something like that they can associate with having something new for school and then to get there and their teacher takes it on them like that, that's not right. Mm-hmm. What is the hope um, that you carry when you are speaking with children that, that they will take these lessons home and grow with them? Or what do you hope that they, that they do with it? I believe it's the children, the students, the children in elementary, the students in high school that are teaching the adults of this country. They go home. They talk about it. They ask questions around the dinner table. And I find that if an adult has children, they're aware of Orange Shirt Day. And if they don't have children, it's getting better now. But uh, in the early days, they had no, no clue what it was about. But as of late, I've been doing a lot of presentations to corporations as well as uh, government and colleges. And all these years later, after telling your story um, to so many people, so many kids, and after feeling like you didn't matter for so long, what does it take for to remind yourself that, that you do matter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just being good to myself, treating myself well, um, buying that shirt that's thirty nine ninety nine, <laughs> <laughs> and those shoes that are eighty nine ninety nine, whereas before it was like you know buy the cheapest thing that I could find and um, eat the good food and go for walks, take naps, make a new dish, a, a new recipe, um, spend time with my grandchildren. Um, one of the things, they're learning to ride bikes, so it's a joy to be with them. We go to the park, and they all are in various stages of learning how to bike ride. And uh, just go out for that dinner and spend a couple hundred dollars and splurge. Because there's my five grandchildren, my son and his wife, myself, my husband, and usually my daughter-in-law's uh, parents as well and to just spend time together and and know that life is short and I'm 56 now and I hope to be here at least another you know 20 plus years and and it's um it's not always easy but to enjoy just being alive and be good to myself be good to others and mm enjoy a bit of a bit of life on on this earth you're listening to unreserved on cbc radio one sirius xm u.s public radio and native voice one i'm rosanna dearchild my guest today is phyllis webstad phyllis is from the canoe creek indian band when she was six years old, she was forced to go to St. Joseph's Mission near Williams Lake, B.C. 
The school operated for nearly a hundred years. It closed in 1981, but many children never returned home. Since St. Joseph's closed, there have been two separate investigations using ground-penetrating radar. 159 potential burial sites on the school grounds were detected. On September 5th of this year, Williams Lake First Nation purchased the site. The band wants to ensure the integrity of investigations into children who disappeared while attending the school. This is Chief of Williams Lake First Nation, Willie Sellers. It is a gorgeous drive through the valley leading to St. Joseph's Mission. We, we always used to enjoy that drive. It's great, beautiful landscape. But then you learn the history of that, um, that site, that school, and you start to realize that this gorgeous drive that you know, we have taken for granted since we were kids is um, probably a massive trigger for a lot of the elders and ancestors that uh, attended that school. Wait up, look to be Willie Sellers on Squext. Hello, my name is Chief Willie Sellers with the Williams Lake First Nation. Growing up, we, we didn't know or were really taught about the residential schools in our school systems here in the Caribou or really in this country. So we didn't really know it any different than any other land in the valley. I mean, you could see the remnants of some of the old buildings. The old school has been demolished and, and flattened. There's some outbuildings and some residences that are actually still in occupation today and rented out. Uh, the old gym is still there. The old barns are still there. You can see some of the boards and the old rink, the hockey rink. And then you can see, you know, a beat up trail that leads to the train tracks where a lot of kids were dropped off historically. It was always the intention of the Williams Lake First Nation leadership and community to acquire those lands. You know, we look at generations of leadership that have been trying to acquire it. We own it now, so no one's going to be able to take that away from us. You know, it's not like we're going to develop those lands. It just allows us to make sure that those lands are safe. It's a big part of the healing process of Indigenous communities to make their way back to that site as communities, as nations, as people. And that's what we want to encourage. And we want to just give Indigenous peoples who had ancestors, relatives, went there personally, peace of mind that they're going to have access and they're going to be able to heal when they're ready. The more that we encourage and empower the survivors to tell their story, the easier it's going to get for them in their healing journey. My dad attended that school at St. Joseph's Mission. It's not like he was teaching me the language growing up or he was teaching me the culture growing up. It took a lot for him to, um, to, to even have those conversations about his time there. And, you know, he's just one person. And I can imagine there's, there's a lot that continue to hear the stories and continue to get triggered. And then, you know, one day they step forward and they tell their story. And then their family becomes more aware of it. But this is a story that we need to tell in our education system. This is a story that we need to continue to keep in mainstream media so people are aware 
because what we want to do, uh, of course, is we want to break that cycle. We want to level the playing field. We want to see that healing in our community, and we're just not there yet. But we're seeing progress, and that's what this reconciliation discussion is doing, I think, in this country, in our region, is that people are starting to understand, and they're starting to believe, and they're starting to support. Phyllis Webstad is from Squashim Heitlam. That moment where she was you know, empowered and inspired to tell this story, I think is you know something to also hold up and, and remember because there are a lot of people that still don't want to tell their story. Phyllis's story strikes a chord with so many people because it is a story that they can relate to. You know, all of the elders and all the survivors and all the ancestors that went to these schools across this country were stripped of everything they had. And, you know, something as simple as an orange shirt is a reflection of just how much those little things meant to every single one of those survivors and those ancestors. You know, a lot of them have passed on and never got to tell their story, never got to share, you know, what what meant so much to them when they went to that school that they never seen again, you know, could be their hair, could be their language, could be maybe some of their regalia or their moccasins or their shoes. It's, it's kind of wild. We have the orange shirt story that created this movement that has resulted in a national holiday, you know, a day of mourning, a day of reflection, a day of education which is Truth and Reconciliation Day. So it's it's gotten you know so much bigger than one individual, but it was because of that individual that we now have this uh, this movement and all this progress that we've seen, which is pretty powerful. She came from Williams Lake. You now she's still out there on the front lines doing that work. And when you think about you know telling that story over and over again, no matter how many times you tell it, it's still very emotional and the strength that she has to continue to educate is is pretty neat to see. And what does she mean for the city of Williams Lake and the surrounding area? Hope. Now she gives us all hope. She is um, really is the epitome of what reconciliation is and stands for in this country. I mean, we should be making statues of Phyllis Webstad in this community. <laughs> Yeah, we just have to continue to celebrate who we are and where we come from. You know, I, um, I'll never forget, I had a uh, Indigenous leader. We had the Prime Minister of Canada come to our community. And I had this Indigenous leader reach out to me, Cadmus Delorme, good mentor, a very influential leader in this country from Cowasis. And he said, one of the things that you need to do when the Prime Minister comes to your community is you need to show him know how proud of a people you are you know how resilient and how much you celebrate who you are and where you come from because it shows them and it shows this country that they didn't beat you and when the prime minister leaves our community we want to make sure that he remembers our community and remembers our community in a good way and i mean that little bit of advice was awesome and it made me really think and it made me realize that that kind of treatment isn't just for the Prime Minister of Canada, 
that kind of treatment is for everybody that comes into our territory and comes into our community. You know, we want to make sure that, um, you know, they're leaving and they're saying, wow, that community is thriving. Uh, that revitalization of their language, of their culture, their ceremony is impactful and powerful and something that I want to be a part of as a non-Indigenous person. That's what I can support and that's what I want to get behind and that's what reconciliation is. When we start you know, thinking about healing, that's, that's exactly what it is. I mean, we need to continue to to show those elders that we were never beaten and that our culture, language, and our ceremony is going to continue to live on. It's only going to get stronger because of the fight that they went through, because of the pain that they went through, because of the trauma that they continue to live in their lives. Willie Sellers is the chief of Williams Lake First Nation. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. My guest today is Phyllis Webstad. Now, let's move a little bit forward, Phyllis, in, in, in this story. Earlier this month, the land that St. Joseph Mission Residential School, the school you attended, was purchased by the Williams Lake First Nation. How did you feel about that? Yeah, that land is privately owned. I've gotten kicked off there a few times. <laughs> um, yeah, when we were starting the book of the Orange Shirt story, it's like, okay, my publisher, I warn you. This is going to happen. We need to be prepared. Because uh, I wanted to go, before I started writing that book, I wanted to um, go there and have a smudge. And when I did that, I realized that I'd never set foot on the actual spot where the school was. So we uh, smudged, went in, parked, smudged. And um, I held the smudge bowl as I stepped foot where... The girl's side was on the land. The building's no longer there. And sure enough, not long later, we were told to leave. I was expecting that. But um, but ever since the Kamloops 215, the Williams Lake First Nation, whose traditional territory, the mission was on. And so it's only fitting that uh, they purchase the property and, and be the caretakers of that. And... Um, that only happened, you know, just not too long ago, a yeah. few weeks ago. And um, so it's, um, we'll see what's yet to come. But when, because two phases have been done of the search of the site, and they announced in January of this year that there's 43 communities that are impacted. So that's a lot of people to get together and discuss what their thoughts are for that site. And mm -hmm. I'm just happy that things are progressing. Mm. You mentioned that you had uh, visited the site at one point for the first time. What did it feel like standing there with, you know, smudge and, and knowing that that's where you lost so much of yourself? Yeah, I just stood there holding the smudge bowl and crying. Mm. And... Um, it was a whole body experience, and I, I knew the ancestors were with me. And um, 
just thinking about everything about you know there were stairs there were there was the dorm there was the other kids and all the stories that I've ever heard. There's all these little uh, points in my healing journey, and that was definitely one of them. Mm. How did it feel afterwards? Did you feel a weight lifted? Yeah, it was um, just that feeling again that I, no matter what happens, I'm okay. Mm. And, mm. Yeah. Mm. In your book, Beyond the Orange Shirt Story, you shared some entries from your journal. Um, There's one entry that I was hoping you could read for us. Yeah, and that's one of those times where it's that healing moment, uh, just like going, stepping foot on that ground that I hadn't stepped foot on since I left in 74. This was another one of them. And it's on page 22 of Beyond the Orange Shirt Story. I get given messages in random ways, such as recently on my drive to the office, in my journal I wrote, Today, driving to work, I saw three little girls lined up as the bus approached with its red lights flashing. As I pass by them, The words, it's okay, were spoken to me and I felt it in my soul. The memory triggered was that of getting on the bus to go to residential school and public school and all that followed. Such a tiny, quick moment, but it was a healing moment nonetheless. It brought a tear to my eye. So it was a a trigger for me, I guess, watching those girls there waiting for the bus to get on. And and they were little. Yeah. Like they were five and six-year-olds, the same as as I was. A bittersweet moment. Yeah. Yeah. And now today, um, wearing an orange shirt and seeing, you know, so many others wear them. How do you feel? I remember the first time I... I realized that the wearing of orange shirts is happening on a mass scale all across Canada in elementary schools everywhere. I was on my book tour in 2018. I was brought to Victoria or went to Victoria. I was going through the hallways and every classroom had orange shirts on. And by the time I got to the gym, I was uh, like a crying fool. <laughs> I was like, mm. like I was crying because it just hit me that this is one of many all across Canada that is doing this and they're learning about what happened to us and they care about what happened to us and um, so now uh, I when I finish doing like a presentation sometimes I still have my orange shirt on and I'm at the airport and um the kids recognize me because they watch videos, they read my book, you know, they look at my picture and talk about the orange shirt story and they'll be nudging each other, pointing at me and so I'm, you know, kind of waving to them as well and the adults are like, you know, what's going on? Who who do you see? <laughs> they don't recognize me, but the kids do. Mm. And I thought that's really cool because they're going to grow up as adults, like knowing... Um, 
So if I ever go into a bank or, you know, an indigenous person does, they're going to be treating them like human beings. And that's, that's going to be different because we haven't always been treated as human beings. And you helped build that. You helped make that change. Yes, it's... Um, I would say that this whole movement has been divinely guided from the very beginning. And um, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I don't know how to take it sometimes. And I haven't actually had the time to sit back and s- let it sink in. Like, I think I need to, I don't know what I need to do, but um, it's just been go, go, go this past 10 years. And it's still go, go, go. And I haven't had time to stop and to like, you know, think back and reflect and it's like, oh my goodness, yeah, look at look at look at what's happened and it's my story that um is uh bringing this along and in my journeys across Canada telling my story, there's a lot of people out there doing good work and it's not just my story that's helping to change our Canadian society, but it's it's one of many, mm-hmm. and um, I always acknowledge that. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's right in there with a lot of other good work making changes in this country. Well, thank you so much for this time and for you know making that orange path to healing for us. Hmm. Well, thank you for having me here. Phyllis Webstad is a residential school survivor. She is a community organizer, a community hero, and the founder of Orange Shirt Day, which is marked every year on September 30th. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Kim Kasher, Rhiannon Johnson, Aisha Smith-Belgaba, and Laura Bone-Stubing. Visit us on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved, or download the podcast on the CBC Listen app. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.